the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Today's guest is Les Phillips, PhD. Dr. Phillips is a licensed psychologist in North Carolina. Welcome, Dr. Phillips. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Tell our listeners about yourself and your background and how you became a psychologist. I was never sure what I wanted to do. I was always interested in psychology and in sort of figuring people out. When I was in college, I had a double major in business and psychology, kind of keeping a foot in both camps thought about maybe getting an industrial organizational psychology training. When I got out, the economy was quite poor. And so it occasioned me to go on to graduate school and got a master's in clinical psychology, then went on to get a PhD. So always uh, some interest in people and figuring people out and then just some opportunities that presented themselves. Well, we're glad you're with us and not doing a business thing somewhere. Dr. Phillips, you're a specialist in behavioral treatment of chronic pain. Please explain to our listeners what that means and what it is you do in clinical practice. That is a great question. And and when I tell people that I work for an orthopedic and rehabilitation medicine practice, they usually go, what? (laughs) (laughs) So most people, when you think about psychology, you think about maybe how you're getting along with your partner or spouse or maybe job stress or other kinds of things. And you're treating, you know, people with depression and anxiety and and things like that. In health and rehabilitation psychology and pain treatment in particular, it's sort of applying the same kinds of principles that you might use in other kinds of problems. But coping with this particular medical problem, in this case, chronic pain. What I try to do is really drill down into people's coping skills, figure out whether they're moving away from the pain, kind of a pain avoidant lifestyle where the less I do, the less I hurt, so I do the least, but then over time, the pain controls my life more, or maybe they're the opposite. They're moving toward the pain very aggressively and trying to white knuckle their way through it. And they need to downshift a little bit or people who are kind of in between and overdue on a good day and crash on a bad. So I look at their day-to-day lifestyle. I look at the beliefs and, and thoughts that they have about the pain and also what specific pain coping skills that they use of a non-medicine nature. And that could be anything from simple things that many people do, like using ice packs or hot packs or self-massage tools, stretching, TENS units, things like that. And also mind-body tools that help to calm the nervous system down, things like meditation, relaxation, self-hypnosis. Most people know intuitively that stress seems to aggravate pain. Anybody who's ever had young children know when it comes to pain in kids, Uh, more upset equals more pain, calmer is better. So I work on those things, the overall lifestyle, specific pain-related beliefs and attitudes, and then specific pain coping skills, all with the idea of developing something called pain self-efficacy, which is just 50 cent psychology's way of saying, I feel confident in my ability to manage this condition, even though it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Awesome. 
And we're really glad to have you here today. Fascinating material coming up. If we talk in terms of patients who might benefit from your consultation, your treatments, could you tell us what types of patients would benefit from this? And on the other hand, what types might not? Most of the people I see have chronic pain. And I'm going to say chronic pain is just, I guess, by time, more than six months or certainly more than a year. And that patient has probably seen a fair number of specialists, but maybe has never tried mind-body medicine kinds of techniques, or if they have, they've gotten not too far into them. And they're looking for a more integrated or holistic approach. And they may be a person who is on pain medication, but doesn't really want to be. And they're looking for other things to either complement that to reduce their reliance on it, or maybe they don't want to go that route at all. And so they're looking to develop alternative means of of managing the pain. A person who's motivated toward a more integrated, holistic approach to managing chronic pain. I also see people with acute pain sometimes too. A lot of that is related to work injury, and that could be any kind of work injury that's persistent. And that person may not be hitting their recovery milestones. In other words, if most people that have that injury are better by three months, this person is is not hitting those mile markers and might benefit from some coaching. And in fact, I that's what I tell people I do, Sam. I say uh, my kind of psychology practice is mostly like pain or rehabilitation coach. And like any coach, you're you're trying to help the person improve how they cope with this condition. So I would say, People who are in rehabilitation or acutely injured who are not recovering at the expected rate or people who have a more longstanding problem who are interested in self-regulation or more holistic approach to to managing pain. Mm -hmm. To talk about it a little bit further, I read in a piece, and I'm going to partially plagiarize here, so forgive me, that health psychology and behavioral medicine includes three major topics, health behavior risk reduction, psychosocial aspects of medical illness and medical care, and psychosocial and psychobiological influences on disease. Now, if we say that in Bama speak, where I'm from, uh, that means there's a lot more to pain than affects the person beyond the physical response. Can you explain a little bit about psychosocial influences and how that might affect people with chronic pain? Most people don't think about that. Most people think about the pain as what I call a real estate problem, like location, location, location. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is that, and that, that's how the pain gets started. And I guess most people don't think, well, why do we even have pain in the first place? I think the purpose of pain in, in us or in our dogs or cats or any other vertebrate animal is it's like an alarm system. And it goes off to tell us that we're either being injured or we're getting ready to be injured. So it, it tells us to have a caution, have a look and explore what, what's going on. But as it turns out, pain is quite complicated, and the longer it goes on, the farther away it gets from that, just that local pain generator, like that bad shoulder or that bad back. It still may have local generators of pain. But again, most people don't think about this, but the pain itself is in the brain. Now, if you're out there and you say, well, of course, this dumb psychologist is going to say my pain is all in my head. But really, if you think about this, it it makes sense. I don't know if any of you know anyone who has a spinal cord injury, but if that spinal cord injury is severe enough, chances are that person can't feel any sensations 
below the level of that cord injury. So they could literally have their foot be on fire and from a sensation standpoint, not tell because that pain message could not get to the brain where it says, ouch. Also, if you've ever had a surgery of any kind, they either put you under general anesthesia or in a twilight state in which for all intents and purposes, the brain is, is sort of asleep. And they do that basically so you won't have pain. So if you don't have pain when the brain is asleep, but the pain comes back when the brain wakes back up, therefore that argues that the pain has got to be in the brain. So anything else going on in the brain can make the pain worse or better. So back to our child example, uh, if you're a parent of a young child or you've been a young child, you know intuitively when that child is in pain and upset, you usually do a quick assessment and see if they need to go to the emergency department or not. But beyond that, your first instinct is usually to reassure and calm. So that makes you a pain psychologist right there. You're using psychological strategies to deal with some of the psychosocial influences on the pain, in this case, fear and upset. So as it turns out, there's a lot of different areas of the brain that are involved in pain. There's an area called the sensory cortex where we think that's the ouchness of pain. So maybe aching or stabbing or throbbing. There's a whole nother area of the brain called the limbic system where we feel emotions and that area also happens to be where all the arousal alarms of the brain are. So the stress response and the emotional response is in that limbic system. And again, in an emotional situation of one of upset or fear or anger or other kinds of things like that, those have a profound effect on pain. Moreover, life stress in general, am I going through a hard period of life where my, my going through more stress anyway, that tends to amplify pain. Having social support versus the feeling of being alone. People who tend to believe that there are other people in their corner that they can talk to and are on their side, that seems to have a moderating effect on how much they suffer versus feeling alone and nobody understands and nobody cares. Likewise, even things like competitiveness have been shown to affect a pain and pain perception. They've done some studies, for example, in which uh, they put, let's say, a, a healthy young male volunteer for a student on an exercise bike, and they tell him to pedal as hard as he can. Don't, I mean, do absolute best. Don't leave anything in the tank. And they measure that. And they may take that same subject and put him next to an attractive person who happens to be a high-level cyclist the next time. And usually... <laughs> usually that subject uh, exceeds his own, uh, his own uh, best response, even though he was told not to leave anything in the tank. So things like fear, competition, stress, your overall level of arousal, your mood, all those things affect pain perception, and more importantly, the behavior that goes with that, which can trend you in a direction of better pain coping or worse pain coping. Mm-hmm. Gosh, just fascinating. Well, let me ask you a little bit about your behavioral treatment and rehabilitation experience, uh, as well as developing treatment programs. I read that you developed or co-developed behavioral programs in pain management, smoking cessation, and weight loss. 
And I'm just curious, do you find any similarities among patients in these different programs related to pain and addiction and those, you know, overweight, that kind of thing? Do you find any correlations or do you prescribe similar treatments for these folks? I would certainly say they have some a fundamental correlation and that some of the foundations of treatment are, are quite similar. Most of the work I've done, Sam, in weight management and smoking cessation and things like that was back in my earlier part of my career. My first professional job after completing graduate school in my postdoctoral year was I was a medical psychologist in the VA medical system. And uh, the medical psychologists there are sort of in charge of all the things that psychiatry isn't <laughs> in, in terms of behavioral health. So we had programs for smoking cessation and weight loss, as you said. We did consultation services and we had an I Can Cope series for people with cancer and we did psychological evaluations for organ transplants and, and things like that as well. But back to your question then, whether we're talking about smoking cessation or weight loss or pain management, from my point of view, they all involve behavior change they all involve doubts that I can do it or some things that are in my way of being successful, as well as some motivation and belief to do so. They all involve some behavior changes in my part and some changes in my thinking and lifestyle. They all kind of go together in that regard. Moreover, I would say pain management is a rule. For example, if you have a surgery, you're less likely to recover well if you're a smoker than if you aren't a smoker. Working before the surgery to uh, become a non-smoker or at least to decrease smoking is going to improve your prognosis there. Likewise, if the person is markedly overweight, again, that can have to do with prognosis too. So some of these other health behaviors interact directly with outcomes in pain treatment and in surgery, but they also have, as I said, a complementary underlying set of behaviors, thoughts, and actions that need to be done in order to be successful. Great stuff. Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for being with us today. I know people are going to benefit from this, and I'm excited to get it on the air. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, and I hope it was helpful to whoever listens. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Coming up next week, more with Les Phillips. Hey guys, this is Sam Dyer, host of the Ortho PAC and president of the PAOS. Guess what? We're back. Extremities in the Carolinas, Trauma for General Orthopedics, the Charlotte Conference, May 21st and 22nd, 2021. Check out the PAOS.org website for details.